This is Africa Digest. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we give you news from an African perspective. My name is Spumela Lezundi, broadcasting to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. You can find us on frequency 9625 kHz, that's on the 31-meter band. If you are in a Southern Africa, it's channelafrica.co.za if you want to stream us. I'm with Joela Netulo, Tracy Boomgaard and Musi Budimakura. It's up stories. As widely predicted, Paul Beer declares, uh, declared as winner of Cameroon's October 7 polls. The first session of the Pan-African Parliament gets underway in Rwanda. In economics, uh, Morocco's largest telecoms operator reports a 7% rise in third quarter profits. And in sports, Custer Semenya nominated for IAAF Female World Athlete of the Year. Cholane Tulu has the news. Good afternoon, I'm Jolani Tulo. Cameroonian President Paul Bia has been re-elected with 71% of the vote. This has extended Bia's 36-year rule. The 85-year-old has been in power since 1982 and was seeking a seventh term in office. Opposition candidates have called the election fraudulent, scattered violence connected to a separatist movement in the Western Anglophone regions also kept most there from voting. Moki Kinzaka reports. Paul Bia, according to the results, wins with over 70% of the votes, followed by Maurice Kamto, Cabral Libby and Joshua Osi, John Gute, close aide and Bia's minister in charge of special duties, says he is not surprised at the victory because Cameroonians are aware Bia has done much for them and is ready to do more for their development. Burundi's Public Security Ministry has accused a prominent opposition member of parliament of plotting to assassinate President Pierre Nkurunziza and other top officials, including his two deputies and the parliament speaker. In a televised address in the past week, the ministry spokesperson accused Pierre Kestalin Ndikumana, member of the opposition coalition, of being behind the plan. Chairperson of the coalition Hope for Burundians, Agathon Rasa, says it's a bad habit for security forces and the ruling party to wrongly accuse people. It is a bad habit in this country for security forces and the ruling party to just set up some allegations when they want to just annoy some people. Personally, I cannot understand how come that this couple, once it is convinced that they are in danger, they couldn't even dare come to the office of the National Assembly and express their anxiety and their preoccupation with regard to their own security. 
The National Heritage Council of South Africa says there's a need to be for an audit to be done on all churches in South Africa. The council believes that this will make it easier for church leaders to be held accountable. The call comes in the wake of the trial of Nigerian pastor Timothy Omodoso and his two co-accused who are facing a string of charges including rape, sexual assault and human trafficking. Some pastors have been filmed feeding congregants rats, snakes and petrol. CEO of the National Heritage Council, Sonabile Mwatwa. What we need to do now is to protect people, communities, against some practices of churches. One way to do that is to make a very comprehensive audit of who is practicing worshipping in South Africa. Churches are mushrooming everywhere. When there's a human settlement, the first thing that will be there is a church. You can't regulate something that you do not know. Omotoso's trial was earlier adjourned until Thursday at the request of defense lawyer Peter Doberman. He accused, he asked rather for the postponement to prepare arguments to appeal Judge Mandela Makao's decision not to recuse himself from the case. Makaola declined the recusal application, saying he did not believe it had any merit. Doberman has indicated he wants to consult senior counsel and to possibly appeal the ruling in the Supreme Court of Appeal. And finally, Russia says the United States will make the world a more dangerous place if it continues with its threat to pull out of the Treaty of Intermediate Range Nuclear Missiles. It comes as the U.S. National Advisor John Bolton visits Russia. The BBC's Sarah Rainsford has the story. Moscow flatly rejects Donald Trump's accusation that it's been violating the INF Arms Treaty. Instead, the Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov claimed that it's the United States that's broken the deal, an argument President Putin has made multiple times. But the treaty itself, Moscow insists, remains vital to global security. If Washington does abandon it, then Mr Peskov warned the world would become a more dangerous place. The Kremlin spokesman said that's because the U.S. would go on to develop its nuclear weapons systems, forcing Russia to act to restore the balance. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Thank you very much, Olana. It is 1706 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we give you news from an African perspective and starting in Cameroon, where Paul Bia, who is Africa's oldest president, has been declared winner out of eight other candidates in Cameroon's October 7 presidential election. The 86-year-old, whose mandate ends in 2025, will be a 93-year-old then and is followed by Maurice Camto of the Cameroon Renaissance Movement Party, Cabral Libby of Universe and Joshua Osi of the Social Democratic Front. In that order, here's Mokikin Zeka. Suffrage en faveur de chaque candidat. Bia Paul. This is the voice of Clement Atangana, president of Cameroon's Constitutional Council, reading election results from all over Cameroon. Paul Bia, according to the results, wins with over 70% of the votes, followed by Maurice Camto, Cabral Libi and Joshua Osi, John Gute, close aide and Bia's minister in charge of special duties, says he is not surprised at the victory because Cameroonians are aware Bia has done much for them and is ready to do more for their development. Paul Bia, we know the man who is very persevering, the person who is very patient, the one who is very honest, 
and who is candid and who tells Cameroonians what can be done and what is not possible to be done. The man who is peace-loving and the man who wants good for Cameroon. Angry protesters came out singing that Bia had stolen Maurice Camto's victory but were quickly dispersed by heavily armed troops. Augusta Bate supports Kamtu. We want justice. We should not only preach democracy, we should practice it as well. The presidential elections, even Bia knows um, Kamtu won this presidential election, so he should just let him take over power. Joshua Osi of the main opposition Social Democratic Front, who came out fourth in the election, says he has not recognized the outcome of the polls. History holds it that one head of state using the entire government, army, police, and state resources to maintain himself in power. History holds it that what happened on the 7th of October 2018 was worse than anything witnessed before. It was everything except an election. Cameroon's Constitutional Council last week threw out 18 petitions filed by, among others, Maurice Camto, Cabral Libby, and Osi Joshua for the partial or total cancellation of the October 7 presidential election. Maurice Camto and Cabral Libby have asked Cameroonians to take up their responsibilities and defend their rights if they feel cheated in the presidential poll. Bia was prime minister for seven years, beginning in 1975, then became president following the resignation of the Central African State First Leader Amadou Ahijo. He has ruled Cameroon since November 1982 and is the oldest sub-Saharan African president after his neighbor Teodoro Obiangema of Equatorial Guinea. In 2008, he revised the 1996 constitution to remove presidential term limits, allowing him to contest and win the 2011 election. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Yaoundé, Cameroon. Former South African Foreign Affairs Minister Rulu Fopik Abortha was a transparent politician who played a pivotal role in steering the country towards democracy. This is the view of a retired member of parliament and former chief whip of the Inkatsa Freedom Party, Kuos of Funded Merva. Botha died at the age of 86 after a long illness. His death has stirred up mixed sentiments on social media, as many disagree on whether to define his legacy as an apartheid oppressor or reformer. While some observers considered him a reformer in the hardline National Party administration he served under for many black South Africans, he was a technocrat who used his talents to sanitize an oppressive regime. Van der Merve says Botha was an advocate for change. I knew him very well because I spent around 20 years with him in Parliament. Uh, and he was, of course, a great orator and a very kind person who assisted his colleagues. He assisted me in my constituency, came to hold many meetings there, 
Uh, whenever I went overseas, he arranged with South African embassies to assist me. And once he invited me on a visit to all South African embassies in Eastern Europe and Russia. His door was always open and his office light was the last to be put out. So he was a very kind person and a good parliamentarian. But uh, he was actually more of a loner. He more kept to himself. He rarely ate with his uh, MP colleagues in Parliament, uh, with the result that in 1978, only 22 out of 170 National Party MPs voted for him as leader. But I'm now coming closer to what you said in introduction, because when he and Connie and PW was, uh, were the candidates to become the leader of the National Party, their challenge was exactly the same, namely how to find a new constitutional model in the place of separate development. That's what it's all about. In 1986, he predicted that South Africa might one day have a black president, a statement that earned him a stern rebuke from President P.W. Botta. He, of course, went on to join the ANC in 2000. The party says it viewed him as one of the few former National Party leaders who realized that apartheid was wrong and a crime against humanity. Because of this, some believe he deserves a state funeral. D- do you share this sentiment, Mr. Van der Merwe? No, 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 I don't think so. Uh, why should Pat Witter get a state funeral? He wasn't prime minister. He was just uh, one of the many uh, Afrikaners who at that stage had their eyes on the future and were looking for uh, solutions. In 1986, he did predict that South Africa would uh, not become a partition state, but a unitary state with a black president. And although P.W. Goethe repudiated him, I think P.W. did that with his tongue in his, uh, in his cheek. Because we all knew already at that stage that the partition model has failed and that there will be eventually, there will be a unitary state with a black president. Now, apartheid being a crime against humanity is nonsense. Uh, I know that uh, there's been a lot to say about that, but if I can start telling you about crimes against humanity in other parts of the world, especially North America, Australia, and many other countries, where millions of people have been brutally killed. Uh, That is crimes against humanity. What happened in South Africa is we had a failed constitutional model. When it became clear that it cannot be realized, we accepted the inevitable of a unitary state and a black president. Now, he also played a central role in the intricate negotiation process by Western Contact Group, which led to Namibia's independence. Talk us through the role that he played before Namibia became independent. Well, he had the same idea in Namibia as in South Africa, namely, that the constitutional efforts at the time were not going to work. It was inevitable that the majority of people in Southwest Africa were going to govern that country. As you know, the Ubambus are 52% of uh, Namibia, and he saw the inevitability of Namibia going to San Majoma. And this is, uh, with that vision, he tackled the negotiations 
and eventually he succeeded in getting uh, good agreements there. Now, do you agree with those, Mr. van der Merve, who say that he has taken too many secrets uh, to the grave with him? Nonsense. A bolder dash. What, what, uh, what secrets can he take to the grave? We've got the same thing with Kais Darby Lewis. Uh, people like to talk about uh, others taking uh, secrets to the grave. But Bota had no secrets, man. He was an open man, like a book. That's Gwosa Fandemeva, a retired member of parliament in South Africa, talking to Kumbero Mujadare. <laughs> For those who sang Do Re Mi Fa So, you realize the Mi 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 is an ugly song. Mama, Albertina Sisulu was not about Mi 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 Mi. That's why I feel so honored honoring Mama Sisulu. This year, 2018, marks a hundred years of the birth of Nonzigelelo Albertina Sisulu, who died in June 2011. Nonzigelelo Albertina Sisulu, a humble and yet gallant epitome of South African people's steadfast struggle for human rights and freedom against apartheid racism and all forms of oppression in the entire world. Join Channel Africa, the South African nation and progressive mankind across the world in celebration of a centenary of a gallant freedom fighter and a mother of the South African nation. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. It is 17.17 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we continue to give you news from an African perspective. Now, the Pan-African Parliament has kicked off its session in Kigali parliamentarians and rather Kigali parliamentarians ensure that they are ready to give their best in support of the African continent's free trade area and other pending issues that will push for the development of the continent. Sylvanas Karamera is in Kigali. The first session of the 5th Parliament of Pan-African Parliament kicks off on Monday in Kigali, Rwanda, running up to 2nd November. President Pohagame, who is also the AU chairperson, officiated the opening session on Monday that has brought together 275 MPs representing all 55 countries in Africa on a quarter of 5 MP per country. Speaking during the opening of this session, President Pohagame called on the members of Continental Legislative Assembly to provide their support in the ongoing reforms in Africa. We count on you to be strong advocates for African integration. More especially, I would like to ask for your support for the speedy ratification of the African Continental Free Trade Agreement the protocol on the free movement of persons and other key pillars of Agenda 2063. Members of Parliament in attendance assured the President that they are working around the clock to face the challenges in place. This is Martin Ngoga, Speaker of the East African Community Safe Assembly, EARA. We have political structure at the continental level 
and we have economic regional blocks around which we can build our renewed determination to take our continent to the next level. So it is our challenge to take the opportunity and to face the challenge with the determination. The regional parliament I represent is playing this role, mindful that our objectives and our efforts are not an end in themselves. What we are doing in our regional block is to build a strong foundation that can feed in the efforts at the continental level where you are, both, you are all involved. We will continue to work together to achieve our goals. It is time that we make a determined decision to take our continent where it, is, it deserves it to be. It is time to fight the remnants, the resistance we continue to have, the, the, the perseverance and the ideas of a colonial state that, uh, that we continue to face. The president of the Pan-African Parliament, Roger Nkondo Dang, explained that the session being held in the country was a perfect place to learn on how best they can deliver for the African continent. This is a special session because in the next two weeks we will be learning from President Pogame, who has also led the reforms at the African Union. At the African Parliament, we want to hasten our pace. I would say we have come for a retreat to understand more what the citizens of Africa expect from us in depth. I believe that President Kagame, as a Pan-Africanist, will help in this so that by the time we live here, we are singing the same tune, more so as Pan-Africanists. The Pan-African Parliament is one of the nine organs proposed in the 1991 treaty establishing the African Economic Community in Abuja. The Parliament is intended as a platform for people from all African states to be involved in discussions and decision-making on the problems and the challenges facing the continent. Silvanus Kremera reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. There is currently no place in the sun for mining impacts at communities in South Africa and the cold darkness of the night continues for them as they're excluded from any meaningful consultation or decision-making processes. This was one of the messages from the chairperson of the Benchmarks Foundation, Bishop Joe Sioka, at the opening of the organization's annual conference in Johannesburg. More from Executive Director at the Foundation, John Kappel. So we're hosting our conference and our theme is a new dawn or continuing nightmare because communities really suffer all the impacts of mining. Communities are often uprooted and relocated, lose access to their livelihoods and, and their ancestral land and their way of life and kinship relationships. Then they suffer cultural shock and they're traumatized. And communities don't benefit from mining at all. The jobs that are promised never materialize. It's only women in the communities that fill the quota around the mining charter. But other than that, communities suffer impacts, and so we really question whether this is a new dawn or a continuing nightmare, and that is what we're interrogating at our annual conference this year. Maybe we can speak to uh, the issues that you're speaking about, about the communities not benefiting. Why are the communities not benefiting? Are these companies coming in and bringing their people? Are these companies coming in and destroying the environment? What is the situation there? Okay, so the companies are coming in and they're destroying the environment. They're destroying people's access to water, for example. There's some operations around London, as another example, 
where the pressure is not enough for communities to get water during the day and only at night at 12 o'clock do they get it. The other communities where water now has to be busting once a week and they lack, lack access to water. So these are the kinds of issues that communities experience. So the mining industry still relies very largely on migrant labor and migrant labor tends to follow the mines around wherever they are. So mines are always looking for those workers with experience so they don't even have targets for local employment. And we think they should have targets for local employment. But at the same time, they should be addressing the mess that they make. They like to tell us about the projects that they've put into communities, if it's a library or a clinic or this or that. But they're not telling us about how they address the air quality issues that communities are complaining about, or the water quality issues that communities are complaining about, or the dust or the cracked housing. So, there are a number of these kind of impacts the industry is just not addressing. And then their spend in communities is so low that it's just about insignificant. You've touched on one of my questions, especially in terms of the dust and also the mine dumps. When the companies are done with these places, it's just left mine dumps and nothing happens to um, these places. It's just a problem for people living around these areas. Yes, no, that's true. And last year we released a study called the Sweater Hole Study, looking at old gold mining areas and the mine dumps and the impacts that they have on local communities. And there's a continual sort of impact. And the biggest issue is respiratory problems, dusting the houses, dusting their food. Mine dust has contaminated the uranium. And people are unaware in these communities of what those mine dumps consist of. And then mines normally go on care and maintenance, and they don't close properly. There's 50 billion sitting in rehabilitation fund at the DMR, that money's not being utilized, or they underplay their environmental liabilities and they sell off the mine to a junior player who can't cope with those environmental liabilities. And do you think that government is actually taking this issue of rehabilitation, of actually making sure that the environment around the mine dumps is safe for the people living in these areas? Now, I don't think government is taking its responsibility at all seriously in this regard. Um, we've got 6,000 abandoned mines in South Africa. They've just been abandoned, and they continue to wreak havoc. They cause acid mine drainage. And so it's an ongoing sort of saga, an ongoing problem, and there's very little monitoring around rehabilitation. And rehabilitation should begin when the mine starts, not at the end of the mining life. So we don't see much of that happening. Now, talking about the mine companies themselves, are they also investing in the people, in the communities, they, or they just come and they do whatever they want and then they move on? Well, they're investing very little. We just released a study on the 5th of September on Angler Platinum, 12 years of reporting called Coping with Unsustainability. And what we noticed is that between the good years, 2003 and 2008, $42 billion went to shareholders in the form of dividends. 23 million a year was basically spent in communities. Now, if you compare 23 million a year to that 42 billion that went to shareholders, you know, it's about 120 million in the same period that went to communities, which is completely insignificant compared to the impacts that they're having. For us, they are not responsible in terms of how they engage with communities, interact with communities, or deal with the impacts on communities. And a lot of it is showcasing. A lot of it is to create a public perception that they're doing well. So we examined these reports over a 12-year period. 
And really, Angela don't have an answer for us. Is there a way of having a win-win situation? We know the mines are good for the economy, but at the same time, the communities living around these areas are not winning. Is there a possibility of a win-win situation, especially when looking at the mine dumps, when the mining companies are done and they just leave these mines like that? Well, yes. I think there are opportunities to address these negative impacts of mining and into opportunities for development. Industry is not really looking at that very seriously. They're too focused on getting the ore out. So there are opportunities around that. Benchmarks Foundation has developed what we call the Independent Capacity Building Fund, which must allow communities access to various specialist expertise, and also the Independent Problem Solving Service, which is how we want to address problems in a way that lead to developmental outcomes and job creation for local communities. So we engage in the industry in a big way around these two initiatives. If we can get them right, I think we'll start to see some kind of change at community level. That is John Capo, Executive Director at the Benchmark Foundation, talking to Tuto Ngobeni over there. For those who sang Doremi Faso, you realize the me, 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 me is an ugly song. Mama, Albertina Sisulu was not about me, 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 me. That's why I feel so honored honoring Mama Sisulu. This year, 2018, marks 100 years of the birth of Nonzigelelo Albertina Sisulu, who died in June 2011. Nonzigelelo Albertina Sisulu, a humble and yet gallant epitome of South African people's steadfast struggle for human rights and freedom against apartheid racism and all forms of oppression in the entire world. Join Channel Africa, the South African nation and progressive mankind across the world in celebration of a centenary of a gallant freedom fighter and a mother of the South African nation. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. It is 17.30 Central African time. Here's Jola Netula with your news headlines. Thank you, Spumalele. Making headlines, Cameroonian President Paul Bia has been re-elected with 71% of the vote. Burundi's Public Security Ministry has accused a prominent opposition member of parliament of plotting to assassinate President Pierre Grunziza and other top officials, including his two deputies and the parliament speaker. And finally, the National Heritage Council of South Africa says there needs to be an audit done of all churches in South Africa. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tula.
1731 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we continue to give you news from an African perspective. Now, there's been dramatic shifts in the race and gender composition of media houses since 2006 in South Africa. This is according to the recent Glass Ceiling Survey, a research project into how women fare in South Africa's media industry. Undertaken by the South African National Editors Forum and Gender Links, the survey also reveals new threats to women in media, particularly underlying sexism. For more on this, we're now joined on the line by Associate Professor in Media Studies at the University of Witwatersrand and a member of the CENF Subcommittee on Diversity, Glenda Daniels. Hello and thank you very much for joining us, Glenda. Good evening. Thank you very much for having me. Now tell us about your glass ceiling survey. What is it? Okay, the glass ceiling survey is to look at the position of women in the newsroom and media to look at what kind of equality has been reached, what kind of transformation has taken place, if at all. And, you know, we've done a, it's almost a 10-year study now, with uh, 2009 being the last study and 2018 being the next one. Um, yeah, so, you know, we looked at transformation in terms of numbers, and then we looked at sexism, uh, patriarchal culture, and what stops women from reaching the top. And what is stopping women from reaching the top, or are they not reaching the top? Well, in terms of numbers, it looks like the numbers between women and men have evened out. It looks like the number of white men have decreased quite significantly from about 50% to 14%. It looks like uh, black men have uh, increased in numbers in senior management, but the one section that hasn't increased substantially or, you know, the, the one section that's misrepresented, underrepresented is the, the question of black women. What stops them from reaching the top? It looks like a whole range of things, well, you know, some of which would include bullying. A lot of women in the survey said they had been bullied in the museum, they had been undermined, they were subjected to patriarchal norms and values and the old boys' club from which they're excluded. So when men go out for drink, drinks after work, they often make decisions, and then women are, um, you know, they find that decisions have already been taken somewhere else. Women are now going to cyber misogyny, and that is about misogyny means hatred of women, and the worst form of misogyny, obviously, is um, murder and rape of women. But misogyny means that women get trolled when they are quite assertive. And um, so that's a feminist backlash. You know, women make gains and then they have a backlash against them. So mm. those are some of the findings. Um, you know, and, and one of the optimistic findings is that um, there's, a more, there's a greater assertiveness amongst women today, particularly younger women, mm. who are saying enough is enough, you know, total shutdown, hashtag me too, and times up for, for sexism. Uh, but those hashtags, do they stay on social media? Do they move into boardrooms? Women are not moving into boardrooms. That's one of the big findings. In fact, for some odd reason, you know, boardrooms seem to be over 90% represented by men. Um, it's more on the ground that there's this assertiveness and on social media. On the ground, I mean, you know, you look at total shutdown, which is women marching in the street, that's on the ground activism. 
that uh, and women in the newsroom and the media seem to be influenced by the fact that there's a strong move to reaching equality. One of the other big findings, which is a concrete finding about um, sexism, is that it looks like the salary gap between men and women have increased. So 10 years ago, it should have decreased by now, but 10 years ago it was 17% that there was a difference between what men and women of the same experience were earning, and now it's 23%. That's quite a scary. Mm. Um, and does your report make any recommendations on what yes. should be happening and um, who should be spearheading this change? Yes. Well, look, one of the you know one one of the things we're saying and we're encouraging as Sanir, um, the chair of the Ethics and Diversity Subcommittee, and um, on Council, and one of the things we are saying is that women must speak up and speak out. They must be more assertive. We would like to see greater ownership and control of the media by women, especially black women. And all media must adopt gender and diversity policies. They must set targets for achieving parity at all levels. For instance, you know, the wage gap. And uh, we must ask for transparency about salaries. There must be banning of sexism and sexist language. We must call out mansplaining. Mansplaining means... um, when a man starts explaining to a woman, meanwhile the woman already understands this. So we have to call that out. And, you know, we have to reveal, as I was saying, and close the gender wage gap. We have to open spaces for women to speak out so that there's no retaliation. Often in the past when women are bullied and undermined, they roll over, they resign. They don't uh, take these issues on head, head on. And we need family-friendly practices. So in other words, you know, people, women give birth to babies, and we need uh, media companies to be empathetic, compassionate, and sympathetic to this. And all these kinds of things, we need self-monitoring and reporting in the media Mm. itself. Uh, and why is it that because these are women in the media and the media is known for speaking out um, for other people, why is it that it appears that they can't speak out for themselves? In the media, I think it's because there's a culture, you know, the, the culture is of, of, of fear. The culture is also of let's not bite the hand that feeds us. So women don't want to talk too much about their own companies. Whereas in this report, if you see it, you'll see women's stories and they've named themselves. There's 10 women's stories who are senior women editors who talk about what kind of sexism they've experienced. It goes from grabbing breasts saying, um, if you don't toe the line, I'm going to kill you. If I knew you were so beautiful, I'd have organized to meet you in my hotel room. So there are all kinds of things that women are now speaking out about. So yes, in the past, you're right. Women were worried about their jobs. They were grateful to have a job. They didn't negotiate their salaries. Whereas men would go into an interview and um, they would say, no, 25000 is not enough. I'm worth 30000 and women would be so grateful to get the job um, that they wouldn't negotiate anything. So I think all those cultural things, norms and values are changing. And, you know, that's a really optimistic finding that, in fact, women are finding their voice and, uh, and more than speaking up, actually yep. shouting out. All right. Thank you very much for joining me. Yes.
It's a pleasure. Bye. Oh, cheers. That is Associate Professor in Media Studies in South Africa's University of Witwatersrand and member of the SANF SAP Committee on Diversity, Glenda Daniels. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. It's 17.40 Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa where we give you news from an African perspective. My name is Spumele Lezondi with you until 1800 hours Central African time. Now, South Africa's Minister of Arts and Culture, Natim Tetwa, together with the ambassadors of the Arab states, will this evening host the opening of the second Arab Cultural Week at the State Theatre in Pretoria. The Southern African Nation's Department of Arts and Culture in collaboration with the Council of Arab Ambassadors representing states and members of the Arab League are hosting this week for the second time with the first one held in 2010. The Cultural Week runs from this evening until Friday the 26th. The event is organized in celebration of the centenary of Nelson Mandela and Al-Quds, the capital of Arab culture. To talk to us more about this, we're now joined on the line by spokesperson at the Department of Arts and Culture, Asanda Makaka. Thank you very much for joining me, Asanda. An absolute pleasure, Pumelele, and a very good evening to you, listeners. Um, Asanda, what's the aim of this Arab Cultural Week? This, the aim of not only this Arab Cultural Week, but all the different cultural weeks that have taken place in the past few years is to strengthen strengthen cultural relations and lay a basis for expanded cultural contact and trade, including opening up new markets for South Africa's creative talent. Now, um, only last month, there was one such um, season's cultural week, and it took place in Brazil. So, in practical terms, what um, Minister Natim Ketwa does when he hosts um, his cultural weeks in other countries is that um, he would take the best that South Africa has to offer in terms of arts and culture and heritage and put that on full display for the benefits of other nations. This time, however, we are ones who are hosting the Arab countries um, and they will get mm. to bring us their culture. They will get um, to, to showcase their uh, heritage. They will get to showcase their um, arts. And it is during this cultural week that, um, you know, these cultural relations will be strengthened and uh, these cultural contacts 
and trade will be established. And now the many Arab countries, which ones have been chosen here and how have they been chosen? Now, the ones you mentioned in your introduction that we're talking here about the Arab Council. Now, the Arab Council would constitute countries like um, the Kingdom of Jordan, and we will have um, His Excellency Awalda, who's going to be present tonight. We also have um, the Embassy of the Republic of Tunisia, uh, the Democratic Republic of Algeria, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, um, the Republic of Sudan, um, the Republic of Somalia was invited, but um, they will not be attending this cultural week. Um, Iraq, Oman, Palestine, Qatar, the state of Kuwait, uh, the Republic of Lebanon, uh, Libya, Egypt, Morocco, Mauritania, and uh, the Republic of Yemen. So what is going to happen at uh, the program today is that Minister Najim Ketwa is going to officiate the program and welcome these members of this Arab Council Mm. and the countries that I've named. And um, it is going to be the chairperson of uh, the Cultural Committee of the Arab Ambassadors Council, um, Mr. Dijani of uh, Palestine, Uh who is going to be speaking on behalf of this Arab nation. All right. Um, it's taking place until Friday. So what's going to be happening? Can the public come? Definitely. Um, remember I said that um, it's not just South Africa that hosts these cultural weeks, but it is also South Africa that goes and takes these cultural weeks to other nations um, in the country. I've already mentioned Brazil. We've had um, um, Algeria. We've had Russia. We um, have the Seychelles coming up, I believe, next week. So in practical terms, um, there's going to be a host of events that are going to be taking place around um, the province. And um, definitely members of the public are urged to attend because it's going to be an experience for all of us to experience these Arab countries and experience who they are in terms of their culture and heritage. And also, excitingly, tonight we're going to have five different performances that um, the attendees will get to enjoy, which is going to be performances of the cultural heritage of um, each of the five mm. nations that will be performing today. So definitely, it's, it's, it's really an opportunity for us to experience cultures um, from around the world. And yep. this week, it is the turn of the Arab nations. And this is very important uh, for us, uh, Budi, because um, I always like to reflect, and certainly Minister Mkhetwa believes that it is through these cultural seasons that one um, certainly they become very fatal to one's prejudice or preconceived notions of what these nations are like. So it's a chance for you to get to experience who they are, what it is about their identity as a nation they prize and hold dear, and that is what they bring to us. So now that South Africa is hosting this week, it's an opportunity for not just government, but members of the public and South Africans at large to experience um, what these nations have to offer. All right, Asanda Makaka, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Buti. Asanda Makaka is a spokesperson at the Department of Arts and Culture in South Africa. It's some for economic news with Tracy Pumgod.
Thank you. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa says he's energized and ready to go back to work after he was booked off by his medical team last week due to an upper respiratory infection. The president says he's looking forward to a busy week on the economic front. The president shared his thoughts about Wednesday's medium-term budget statement and the investor conference that will take place on Friday. He says he's also going to tackle the water crisis in Limpopo's rural areas. Amina Akram reports. Done lots of interesting things. Oh, it's good. A relaxed President Ramaphosa attending the normal ANC official meetings at Lituli House, but took time to reflect on the coming week. I'm back to work. Uh, in good shape, I'm as fit as a fiddle, and I was able to rejuvenate myself and to renew my energy cells, so I'm feeling really good and strong as well. This is going to be an important week for our economy. The National Employers Association of South Africa and the Plastic Converters Association of South Africa have condemned the violence and criminal activities in the ongoing NUMSA strike in the plastic sector. They will now take legal action against the perpetrators, saying their actions were prohibited by legislation. NUMSA members embarked on the strike last week over a wage dispute in the plastic sector. The union says the strike is indefinite unless its demands are met. South African Revenue Service Executive for Employment Relations, Luther Labello, has refuted claims that he had paid close to $70,000 in legal fees to help him prepare for his appearance before the Nugent Commission to resurrect allegations of the so-called rogue unit. Labello says he received an invoice of close to $70,000 from M4 attorneys but disputed the amount. He says the attorneys finally reduced the amount to just over $48,000, but that he did not sign off on the invoice. During his first appearance before the commission, Labello denied allegations that he was suspended SARS Commissioner Tom Moyani's hitman. This is his third appearance before the commission. I received a bill from the same law firm, almost the amount of a million rand for the files. And I was shocked because all I thought is that if you are about to charge people, it means you have got files with you. And, and my instructions were clear, just retrieve the files. So I thought people would just go get the files, clean it up, maybe make two copies and bring it here. So I didn't even expect it to be so much money. Cocoa arrivals at ports in Cote d'Ivoire reached 165,000 tons in the first half of October. This was up around 46% from 113,000 tons in the same period last season. Last week it was recorded that around 34,000 tons of beans were delivered to Abidjan port and 28,000 tons to San Pedro. And President Donald Trump says the U.S. will begin cutting off or substantially reducing aid to three Central American nations over a migrant caravan that's heading to the U.S. southern border. Trump has, as usual, announced the major policy decision in a tweet. Guatemala, Honduras and El Salvador receive aid totaling close to 7 billion rand from the U.S. Trump's Monday morning tweets marks the latest scandal by the president who is seeking to re-inject immigration politics into the national conversation in the closing weeks of the midterm elections. The U.S. dollar is trading at 10.49 Botswana Pula and at 11.74 Zambian Kwacha. 
In BRICS currencies, the U.S. dollar is trading at 3.70 Brazilian hail, at 65.48 Russian ruble, at 73.22 Indian rupee, at 6.93 Chinese yuan, and at 14.36 to the South African rand. It's also trading at 76 pence to the British pound and at 87 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is trading at $1,227 and platinum at $828 an ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $80.49 a barrel. For Channel African News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. Thank you very much, Tracy. It's now time for Sports News with Musibudi Makura. Good evening, sports fans. The IAAF has announced a list of 10 nominees for Female Athlete of the Year Award. Now, the nominees were selected by an international panel of athletics experts comprising of representatives from all six continental areas of the IAAF. Now, South Africa's Kasta Semenya is on that list of nominees. She's unbeaten in her nine 800-meter finals, including at the Commonwealth Games, the African Championships, the Diamond League Final, as well as the Continental Cup. She's the current Commonwealth Games champion in the 1,500 meter event as well as the African champion in the 400 meter event. Now the IAAF Athletics Awards will take place in Monaco on the 4th of December and the IAAF Council as well as the IAAF family will cast their votes by email while fans can vote online via the IAAF's social media platforms. Now the World Athletics Governing Body will also post graphics of each nominee on Facebook, Twitter as well as Instagram. Now to cricket news, after a demoralizing tour of South Africa, Zimbabwe are now fully focused on their latest assignment against Bangladesh. Now Bangladesh are hosting Zimbabwe for a three-match ODI series, followed by two test matches. The first ODI played at Shahiri Bangla National Stadium on Sunday, where the visitors lost by 28 runs. They then follow that up with a second ODI, which takes place in Zohor Ahmed Shauduri Stadium in Chittagong on Wednesday. Now Zimbabwe's former batsman Edward Rainsford is in Bangladesh with the team and says the Chevron um, says the team rather will have a totally different ball game going to the southeastern coast. It's a totally different kettle of fish. Bangladesh will will, will favour their 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 spinners, their left arm spin, the, the off spin uh, on low uh, turning surfaces. Um, I think Chittagong will be maybe a slightly uh, fair contest between batter and ball. And so for Zimbabwe going there, I think their, their main concern will be their batting. How can they avoid collapses? How can they build more partnerships? How can they uh, uh, push a team a little bit deeper with the bat? Now, Rainsford also took time to upload the recently launched Mzanzi Super League, which will see some of three Zimbabwean players, that is Sean Williams, Brandon Mavuta, as well as Sekanda Raza, earning contracts in the league. The Mzansi Simple League is a fantastic initiative uh, for everybody in South Africa, everybody in Southern Africa and everybody in Africa, and then we look at it around the world. 
uh, I think it's, it's a real opportunity for guys like Brandon Mabuka, who is from my hometown, who basically is a few kilometers from where I grew up and now has an opportunity to play on the world stage with world-class players. And I think that is just fantastic. You have Sean Williams there as well because he really played well against Alaska recently. He's in good form. Fakenda Raza, he gets around the world. He was in the Canada uh, T20 competition. That was in July. He was out there. He's been playing in the Afghanistan Premier League. On Football News, Kenya's national women's football team, that is Harambe Stolas, have been drawn in Group B alongside Nigeria, Zambia, as well as South Africa in this year's Africa Women's Cup of Nations tournament. Now, the draw was conducted in Accra, Ghana on Sunday night. The tournament takes place from the 17th of November and concludes on the 1st of December. In Ghana, Stolas are making their second consecutive appearance at this tournament after making their debut back in 2016 where they lost all of their group matches. Now, here is the Stolas head coach, David. Omar talking about the importance of their participation at this tournament. So for us, we have the, the motivation already from the administration. And for me as a coach, uh, the experience that I bring in is to, uh, to understand the feeling of the Africa Cup of Nations within this team. And that's what I bring in uh, particular at uh, this crucial moment. So this is the, 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 the character and the belief that uh, now we bring in the team. Because we believe that uh, women football now uh, is of age. So the situation is we would like also to continue to doing the best amongst the, the, the top teams in Africa. Looking at Group A, the hosts Ghana have been drawn against Cameroon, Mali as well as Algeria. The tournament kicks off on the 17th of November with the Black Queens of Ghana up against Algeria at the Accra Sports Stadium. The top three teams will qualify for the World Cup to be held in France next year, June. And finally, the te- uh, Portuguese Davis Cup team took full advantage of playing their tie at home against the Kia South African team this past weekend. The story Clay Court played um, rather made a tough uh, was or made it tough for the South Africans to have any real chance of victory over the Portuguese. Now Portugal defeated South Africa 4-0. The loss put South Africa back in the Euro Africa Group 2 for 2019, while Portugal will survive the relegation playoff and remain in the Euro Africa Group 1 next year. Here is AC captain Marcos Andrushka. So not the result that we were looking for, um, going down fall up here in Portugal. And, uh, you know, having said that, thought long and hard a little bit over this past weekend uh, as we got done. And, uh, you know, I don't think necessarily it was a, a case of us playing poorly. It was actually a case of the Portuguese playing really well. Um, you know, coming out onto the clay over here mid-season. Uh, in the middle of a hard court sort of swing is always a bit of a tough ask and uh, you know at the start I guess we were hoping that the Portuguese would kind of be feeling the same but they have obviously settled in really nicely into the clay and uh, they played really well all weekend long we weren't giving given too many opportunities. As I sports news at the sound stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. Recapping our top stories, as widely predicted, Paul Beer declared winner of Cameroon's October 7 polls. The first session of the Pan-African Parliament has gotten underway in Rwanda. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Spumela Lezondi, producer Luanda Maome, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening.